Chapter Five of the Ordeal of Mark Twain by Van Wyck Brooks, read by John Greenman. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five: The Candidate for Gentility. Follow his call? Good heavens, that is what men do as bachelors, but an engaged man only follows his bride. Ibsen, the Comedy of Love. The Free Thinkers Society in Puddenhead Wilson, as I have recalled, consisted of two members, Judge Driscoll, the president, and Puddenhead himself. Judge Driscoll, says our author, could be a free thinker and still hold his place in society because he was the person of most consequence in the community and therefore could venture to go his own way and follow out his own notions. As for Puddenhead, with his crazy calendar, he was a sort of outcast, anyway. No one cared a straw what Puddenhead believed. It was Mark Twain's little paraphrase, that fable, of Tocqueville's comment, I know of no country in which there is so little independence of mind and real freedom of discussion as in America. Mark Twain has corroborated this, in so many words, himself. In our country, he says, we have those three unspeakably precious things, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, and the prudence never to practice either. An American can have a mind of his own, in short, upon one of two conditions only, Either he must be willing to stay at the bottom of the ladder of success, or he must be able to climb to the top. No one cares to impugn a fool. No one dares to impugn a captain of industry. Now, when Mark Twain abdicated his independence as a creative spirit, he put his foot on the first rung of that ladder. The children of light are all puddin'-heads in the eyes of the children of this world, and if Mark Twain had been able and willing to remain in the ranks of the children of light, he would have been perfectly free to starve and to shine. But once he had made his bid for success, he had to accept its moral consequences. The freedom he had lost at the foot of the ladder he could hope to regain only at the top. Meanwhile, he had to play the recognized American game according to the recognized American rules. Here Mark Twain was utterly at sea. His essential instinct, the instinct of the artist, had been thwarted and repressed. Nevertheless, just because he was essentially an artist, he was a greenhorn in the tricks of getting on. Why, it was a constant surprise to him at first that people laughed at his stories and gave him gold and silver for telling them. His acquisitive instinct, no doubt, had asserted itself with the lapse of his creative instinct. Still, it was not, so to speak, a personal instinct. It was only the instinct of his heredity and his environment which had sprung up in a spirit that had been swept clear for it. It was wholly unable to focus Mark Twain. He, all his life, the most inept of businessmen, without practical judgment, without foresight, without any of poor Richard's virtues, was never, says Mr. Howells, a man who cared anything about money except as a dream. 
and he wanted more and more of it to fill out the spaces of this dream yes to fill out the spaces the prodigious failure of his genius had left vacant to win fame and fortune meanwhile as his parents had wished him to do had now become his dominant desire and almost every one he met knew more about the art of success than he did he had to make good but in order to do so he had to subject himself to those who knew the ropes consequently whoever excelled him in skill in manners in prestige stood to him in loco parentis and to complete the ironic circle he was endlessly grateful to those who led him about like a savoyard bear because he felt as was indeed true that it was to them he owed the success he had attained this is the real meaning of mr paine's remark it was always mark twain's habit to rely on somebody the list of those to whom he deferred is a long and varied one in later years he did not always consult his financial adviser mr rogers we are told any more than he always consulted his spiritual adviser twichell or his literary adviser howells when he intended to commit heresies in their respective provinces but these were the exceptions that proved the rule in general mark twain abandoned himself to the will and word of those who had won his allegiance there was artemus ward there was anson burlingame there was henry ward beecher what they told him and how he obeyed we have just seen there was bret hart who he said trimmed and trained and schooled me patiently until he changed me from an awkward utterer of coarse grotesquenesses to a writer of paragraphs and chapters that have found a certain favor in the eyes of even some of the very decentest people in the land above all and among many others there was mr howells who from the first moment won his absolute and unvarying confidence in all literary affairs indeed adds mr paine in matters pertaining to literature and to literary people in general he laid his burden on william dean howells from that day it was to howells that he said apropos of the innocents abroad when i read that review of yours i felt like the woman who was so glad her baby had come white it has become the custom with a certain school of critics to assert that mark twain's spiritual rights were in some way infringed by his associates and especially by his wife the evident fact being that he craved authority with all the self-protective instinct of the child who has not learned safely to go his own way and feels himself surrounded by pitfalls there has always been somebody in authority over my manuscript and privileged to improve it he wrote in nineteen hundred with a touch of angry chagrin to mr s s mcclure but the privilege had always emanated from mark twain himself in short having lost the thread of his life and committed himself to the pursuit of prestige mark twain had to adapt himself to the prevailing point of view of american society the middle class 
says a contemporary english writer mr r h gretton is that portion of the community to which money is the primary condition and the primary instrument of life if that is true we can understand why matthew arnold observed that the whole american population of his time belonged to the middle class when accordingly mark twain accepted the spiritual rule of the majority he found himself leading to use an expression of bridge players from his weakest suit it was not as a young writer capable of great artistic achievements that he was valued now but as a promising money-maker capable of becoming a plutocrat and meanwhile instead of being an interesting individual he was a social inferior his uncouth habits his lack of education his outlandish manners and appearance his very picturesqueness everything that made foreigners delight in him all these raw materials of personality that would have fallen into their natural place if he had been able to consummate his freedom as an artist were millstones about the neck of a young man whose salvation depended upon his winning the approval of bourgeois society his outrageousness as mr howells calls it had ceased to be the sign of some priceless unformulated force it had become a disadvantage a disability a mere outrageousness that gift of humor was a gold-mine so much everyone saw mark twain was evidently cut out for success but he had a lot of things to live down first he was in a word a roughneck from the west on probation and if he wanted to get on it was understood that he had to qualify we cannot properly grasp the significance of mark twain's marriage unless we realize that he had been maneuvered into the role of a candidate for gentility but here in order to go forward we shall have to go back what had been mark twain's original unconscious motive in surrendering his creative life to fulfill the oath he had taken so solemnly at his dead father's side he had sworn to make good in order to please his mother in short when the artist in him had abdicated the family man in whom personal and domestic interests and relations and loyalties take precedence of all others had come to the front his home had ever been the hub of mark twain's universe deep down says mr paine of the days of his first triumphs in nevada he was lonely and homesick he was always so away from his own kindred and at thirty-two able to go back to his mother without shame having at last retrieved his failure as a minor he had renewed the peculiar filial bond which had remained precisely that of his infancy jane clemens was sixty-four at this time we are told but as keen and vigorous as ever proud even if somewhat critical of this handsome brilliant man of new name and fame who had been her mischievous wayward boy she petted him joked with him scolded him and inquired searchingly into his morals and habits in turn he petted comforted and teased her she decided that he was the same sam and always would be a true prophecy it was indeed so true that mark twain who required authority as much as he required affection 
could not fail now to seek in the other sex someone who would take his mother's place all his life as we know he had to be mothered by somebody and he transferred this filial relation to at least one other person before it found its born first in his wife and afterward in his daughters this was mother fairbanks of the quaker city party who had we are told so large an influence on the tone and character of those travel letters which established his fame she sewed my buttons on he wrote he was thirty-two at the time kept my clothing in presentable form fed me on egyptian jam when i behaved lectured me awfully and cured me of several bad habits it was only natural therefore that he should have accepted the rule of his wife implicitly that he should have gloried as mr howells says in his subjection to her after my marriage he told professor henderson she edited everything i wrote and what is more she not only edited my works she edited me what indeed were mark twain's works in the totality of that relationship what for that matter was olivia clemens she was more than a person she was a symbol after her death mark twain was always deploring the responsibility he had been to her does he not fall into the actual phrase his mother had used about him she always said i was the most difficult child she had she was i say more than a person she was a symbol for just as she had taken the place of his mother so at her death her daughters took her place mr paine tells how when mark twain was seventy or more miss clara clemens leaving home for a visit would pin up a sign on the billiard-room door no billiards after ten p m a sign that was always outlawed he was a boy mr paine says whose parents had been called away left to his own devices and bent on a good time he used to complain humorously how his daughters were always trying to keep him straight dusting papa off as they called it and how wherever he went little notes and telegrams of admonition followed him i have been used he said to obeying my family all my life and by virtue of this lovable weakness too he was the typical american male as we can see now it was affection rather than material self-interest that was leading mark twain onward and upward it had always been affection he had never at bottom wanted to make good for any other reason than to please his mother and in order to get on he had had to adopt his mother's values of life he had had to repress the deepest instinct in him and accept the guidance of those who knew the ropes of success as the ward of his mother he had never consciously broken with the traditions of western society now a candidate for gentility on terms wholly foreign to his nature he found the filial bond of old renewed with tenfold intensity in a fresh relationship he had to make good in his wife's eyes and that was a far more complicated obligation as we shall see mark twain rebelled against her will 
just as he had rebelled against his mother's, yet could not seriously or finally question anything she thought or did. He adored her as little less than a saint, we are told, which is only another way of saying that automatically her gods had become his. It is not the custom in American criticism to discuss the relations between authors and their wives. So intensely personal is the atmosphere of our society that to stoop and botanize upon the family affairs, even of those whose lives and opinions give its tone to our civilization, is regarded as a sort of sacrilege. Think of the way in which English criticism has thrashed out the pros and cons of Thomas and Jane Carlyle, Percy and Harriet Shelley, Lord and Lady Byron, and the Bronte family, and the Lambs, and the Rossettis. Is it to satisfy the neighborly village ear, or even a mere normal concern with interesting relationships? At bottom English critics are so copious and so candid in these domestic analyses, because they believe that what great writers think and feel is of profound importance to society, and because they know that what any man thinks and feels is largely determined by personal circumstances and affections. It is, no doubt, because of this frank, free habit of mind that all the best biographies, even of our American worthies, Hamilton, Franklin, and Lincoln, for instance, have been written by Englishmen. No one will deny, I suppose, that Mark Twain's influence upon our society has been, either in a positive or in a negative way, profound. When, therefore, we know that, by his own statement, his wife not only edited his works but edited him we feel slightly annoyed with mr howells who whenever he speaks of mrs clemens abandons his role as a realist and carefully conceals that puissant personage under the veil of her heavenly whiteness we feel that the friend the neighbor the guest has prevailed in mr howells's mind over the artist and the thinker and that he is far more concerned with fulfilling his personal obligations and his private loyalties than the proper public task of a psychologist and a man of letters. Meanwhile we know that neither the wives of European authors, nor, for that matter, the holy women of the New Testament have suffered any real degradation from being scrutinized as creatures of flesh and blood, if one stoops and botanizes upon Mrs. Clemens, it is because, when her standards became those of her husband, she stepped immediately into a role far more truly influential than that of any president. Olivia Langdon was the daughter of a wealthy coal-dealer and mine-owner of Elmira, New York. Perhaps you know Elmira? Perhaps, in any case, you can imagine it. Those upstate towns have a civilization all their own, without the traditions of moral freedom and intellectual culture which New England has never quite lost. They had been so salted down with the spoils of a conservative industrial life that they had attained, by the middle of the nineteenth century, a social stratification as absolute as that of New England itself. A stagnant, fresh-water aristocracy one and seven-eighths or two and a quarter generations deep, densely provincial, 
resting on a basis of angular sectarianism eviscerated politics and raw money ruled the roast imposing upon all the rest of society its own type forcing all to submit to it or to imitate it who does not know those august brick and stucco mansard palaces of the middle states those fountains on the front lawn that have never played those bronze animals with their permanent but economical suggestions of the baronial park the quintessence of thrifty ostentation a maximum of terrifying effect based upon a minimum of psychic expenditure they are the vaticans of the coal popes of yesteryear and all the almiras with a single voice proclaimed them sacrosanct we can imagine how mark twain must have been struck dumb in such a presence elmira says mr paine was a conservative place a place of pedigree and family tradition that a stranger a former printer pilot miner wandering journalist and lecturer was to carry off the daughter of one of the oldest and wealthiest families was a thing not to be lightly permitted the fact that he had achieved a national fame did not count against other considerations the social protest amounted almost to insurrection one remembers the story of thomas carlyle that scottish stonemason's son who carried off the daughter of dr welsh of dumfries one conceives what carlyle's position would have been if he had not found his own soul before he fell in love and if jane welsh had been merely the passive reflection of a society utterly without respect for the life of the spirit he would have been and would have felt himself the interloper then he would not have been carlyle but the stonemason's son and she would have been the lady bountiful for mark twain had not married an awakened soul he had married a young girl without experience without imagination who had never questioned anything understood anything desired anything who had never been conscious of any will apart from that of her parents her relatives her friends to win her approval and her pride therefore and love compelled him to do that he had to win the approval and the pride of elmira itself he had to win the imprimatur of all that vast and intricate system of privilege and convention of which elmira was the symbol they had all said of olivia langdon who was the family idol that no one was good enough for her certainly not this adventurous soldier of letters from the west charles langdon her brother and mark twain's old comrade was so mortified at having brought this ignominy upon his own household that he set off on a voyage round the world in order to escape the wedding furthermore mark twain's friends in california replied unanimously to mr langdon's inquiries about his character that while he was certainly a good fellow he would make the worst husband on record would not all these things have put any lover on his mettle mark twain was on probation and his provisional acceptability in this new situation was due not to his genius but to the fact that he was able to make money by it what made the langdons relent and consider his candidacy was quite plainly as we can see from mr paine's record the vast success mark twain was having as a humorous journalist and lecturer with the publication of the innocents abroad as we know 
he had become suddenly a person of substance, an associate of men of consequence. Even in New York people pointed him out in the street. He was a lion, a conquering hero, and Elmira could not help yielding to that. It would be difficult, as Mr. Paine says, for any family to refuse relationship with one whose star was so clearly ascending. But could he, would he, keep it up? To be sure he considered himself, we are specifically told, not as a literary man, but as a journalist. His financial pace had been set for him. I wasn't going to touch a book, he wrote, unless there was money in it, and a good deal of it. He had already formed those habits of pecuniary emulation and conspicuous waste which Mr. Veblen has defined for us, and which were almost a guarantee that he would take a common-sense view of his talent and turn it to the best financial account. Three months before his marriage, his erstwhile barefoot boy was already, the best possible omen for one with his resources, $22,000 in debt. He had put his shoulder to the wheel and had proved that he was able to make money even faster than he spent it, and the instincts of the family man had so manifested themselves in his new devotion that, other things being equal, and his wife would see to that, he really was a safe, conservative risk as a wealthy coal-dealer's son-in-law. Jervis Langdon capitulated. He was a hearty soul. He had always liked Mark Twain anyway. Now he felt that this soldier of fortune could be trusted to cherish his daughter in the style, as people say, to which she had become accustomed. His own household expenses were $40,000 a year. Of course, they couldn't begin on that scale. It wasn't to be expected, and besides, it wasn't the custom. But at any rate, he was going to start them off, and he was going to do it handsomely. One remembers how in The Gilded Age, when Philip Sterling conquers the mountain of coal that makes his fortune, he became suddenly a person of consideration, whose speech was freighted with meaning, whose looks were all significant. The words of a proprietor of a rich coal mine, our author adds, naively, have a golden sound, and his common sayings are repeated as if they were solid wisdom. Mark Twain must have had Jervis Langdon in his mind when he wrote that. As an aspirant to fortune, he naturally stood in awe of a man who had so conspicuously arrived, and now that this man had become his own bountiful father-in-law, he could not, in his gratitude, sufficiently pledge himself to keep his best financial foot forward. Jervis Langdon gave the young couple a house in a fashionable street in Buffalo, a house newly and fully fitted up, with a carriage and a coachman, and all the other appointments of a prosperous menage. It was a surprise, one of the unforeseen delights of Mark Twain's wedding day. He woke up, so to speak, and found himself with the confused and intoxicating sensations of a bridegroom, absolutely committed to a scale of living such as no mere literary man at the outset of his career could ever have lived up to. He had been fairly shanghaied into the businessman's paradise, but Jervis Langdon 
had foreseen everything mark twain's ambition at this time we are told lay in the direction of retirement in some prosperous newspaper enterprise with the comforts and companionship of a home that was the ambition already evoked which his new situation confirmed the ambition which had now fully become his because the langdons encouraged it and as he had no money actually on hand his father-in-law bound himself to the extent of twenty-five thousand dollars and advanced half of it in cash so that mark twain could acquire a third interest in the buffalo express thus almost without realizing it he had actually become a business man with love and honor obliging him to remain one the full consequences of this moral surrender shall we call it can only appear as we go on with our story meanwhile we may note that precisely because of his divided soul mark twain could not consistently and deliberately pursue the main chance had he been able to do so he might in a few years have bought his liberty but he lost interest in his journalistic enterprise just as he was to lose interest in so many other lucrative enterprises in the future and every time he was driven back to make a fresh attempt i have a perfect horror and heart-sickness over it mrs clemens wrote to her sister after the bankruptcy of the publishing house of charles l webster and company i cannot get away from the feeling that business failure means disgrace i suppose it always will mean that to me so if you were to see me you would see that i have grown old very fast during this last year i have wrinkled most of the time i want to lie down and cry everything seems to me so impossible naturally inevitably but imagine an author who was also a devoted lover having to respond to a stimulus like that his bankruptcy was to mark twain like a sudden dawn of joyous freedom farewell a long farewell to business he exclaimed during those weeks of what might have seemed an impending doom i will never touch it again i will live in literature i will wallow in it revel in it i will swim in ink but when his release finally comes he writes as follows to his wife whom he has left in france now and then a good and dear joe twitchell or susie warner condoles with me and says cheer up don't be downhearted and none of them suspect what a burden has been lifted from me and how blithe i am inside except when i think of you dear heart then i am not blithe for i seem to see you grieving and ashamed and dreading to look people in the face you only seem to see rout retreat and dishonored colors dragging in the dirt whereas none of these things exist there is temporary defeat but no dishonor and we will march again charlie warner said to-day show livy isn't worrying so long as she's got you and the children she doesn't care what happens 
she knows it isn't her affair, which didn't convince me. No, Mrs. Clemens, who was so far from being the votary of genius, was not quite the votary of love, either. She was, before all, the unquestioning daughter of that wealthy coal-dealer of Elmira, who had held about a quarter of a million in her own right. Her husband might lag and lapse as a literary man, but when he fell behind in the race of pecuniary emulation, she could not help applying the spur. She had even invested her own patrimony in her husband's ventures, and all that the page typesetting machine had spared went up the chimney in the failure of Charles L. Webster and Company. Of course Mark Twain had to retrieve that. And so it went, as the years passed, owing to the very ineptitude that ought to have kept him out of business altogether, he was involved more and more deeply in it. As we can see now, the condition of Mark Twain's survival, on probation as he was and morally pledged to make a large income, was that he should adopt the whole code of his new environment. It was for love's sake that he put his head, so to say, into the noose. In his case the matrimonial vow had been almost literally reversed, and it was he who had promised not only to love and honor, but also to obey. His loyalty was laid under further obligations by certain family disasters that followed his marriage and by the weakness of his wife. A neurotic hysterical type, at sixteen, through a fall upon the ice, she had become a complete invalid, confined to her bed for two years in a darkened room, unable to sit, even when supported, unable to lie in any position except upon her back, till a wizard came one day and told her, with miraculous results, to arise and walk. Mrs. Clemens was of an almost unearthly fragility, and she seems to have remained so during the greater part of her life. I am still nursing Livy night and day. I am nearly worn out, Mark Twain writes, shortly after his marriage and the death of their first child, not long after, naturally intensified his almost abnormal absorption in domestic interests, his already excessive devotion to his wife. We recall that passionate promise he had made to his brother, I am in for it, I must go on chasing phantoms until I marry, then I am done with literature and all other bosh, that is, literature wherewith to please the general public, I shall write to please myself, then. What chance did he have now, preoccupied at home, driven to support the pretentious establishment his father-in-law had wished on him, to find his own bearings and write to please that self, which had never possessed any truly conscious existence? The whole tenor of this new life was to feminize Mark Twain, to make him feel that no loyalties are valid which conflict with domestic loyalties, that no activities are admirable which do not immediately conduce to domestic welfare, that private and familiar interests are, rightly and inevitably, the prime interests of man. Eve's diary, written by Mark Twain shortly after his wife's death, is said to figure their relationship Adam there is the hewer of wood and the drawer of water, a sort of Caliban, 
and eve the arbiter in all matters of civilization it has low tastes says beauty of this beast some instinct tells me that eternal vigilance is the price of supremacy and how mrs clemens exercised it there is something for the gods to bewail in the sight of that shorn samson led about by a little child who in the profound somnolence of her spirit was merely going through the motions of an inherited domestic piety her life had been circumscribed says mr paine her experiences of a simple sort but she did not hesitate to undertake the work of polishing and purifying her life companion she had no wish to destroy his personality to make him over but only to preserve his best and she set about it in the right way gently and with a tender gratitude in each achievement to preserve his best she sensed his heresy toward the conventions and forms which had been her gospel his bantering indifferent attitude toward life to her always so serious and sacred she suspected that he even might have unorthodox views on matters of religion that was before they were married afterward concerning his religious observances her task in the beginning was easy enough clemens had not at that time formulated any particular doctrines of his own it took very little persuasion on his wife's part to establish family prayers in their home grace before meals and the morning reading of a bible chapter thus was re-established over him that old calvinistic spell of his mother's against which he had so vainly revolted as a child preserving his best as we can see meant preserving what fitted into the scheme of a good husband a kind father and a sagacious man of business after the order of the jervis langdons of this world for olivia clemens had never known any other sort of hero in time says mr paine with a terrible unconscious irony she saw more clearly with his vision but this was long after when she had lived more with the world had become more familiar with its larger needs and the proportions of created things it was too late then the mischief had long been done mark twain frightened his wife and shocked her and she prevailed over him by an almost deliberate reliance upon that weakness to which he the chivalrous southerner the born cavalier in reality could not fail to respond why did she habitually call him youth was it not from an instinctive sense that her power lay in keeping him a child in asserting the maternal attitude which he could never resist he had indeed found a second mother now and he not only accepted her rule implicitly as mr howells says but he rejoiced he gloried in it he teased her he occasionally enjoyed shivering her exquisite sense of decorum but he who could not trust his own judgment and to whom consequently one taboo was as reasonable as another submitted to all her taboos as a matter of course i would quit wearing socks he said if she thought them immoral it was this marriage as we perceive a case of the blind leading the blind mark twain had thrown himself into the hands of his wife she in turn was merely the echo of her environment 
she was very sensitive about me he wrote in his autobiography it distressed her to see me do heedless things which could bring me under criticism that was partly of course because she wished him to succeed for his own sake but it was also because she was not sure of herself we can see between the lines of mr paine's record not only what a shy little provincial body she was how easily thrown out of her element how ill at ease in their journeyings about the world but how far from unambitious she was also it was for her own sake therefore that she trimmed him and tried to turn caliban into a gentleman timid and ambitious as she was having annexed him to herself she had to make him as presentable as possible in order to satisfy her own vanity before the eyes of those upon whose approval her happiness depended mark twain told once of the torture of embarrassment with which she had had to confess at a london dinner-table that he the great american author had never read balzac thackeray and the others but boston from the point of view of elmira was almost as awe-inspiring as london mr and mrs clemens were often the guests of mr and mrs howells here is what mark twain wrote to howells after one of these visits i caught it for letting mrs howells bother and bother about her coffee when it was a good deal better than we get at home i caught it for interrupting mrs c at the last moment and losing her the opportunity to urge you not to forget to send her that manuscript when the printers are done with it i caught it once more for personating that drunken colonel james i caught it for mentioning that mr longfellow's picture was slightly damaged and when after a lull in the storm i confessed shamefacedly that i had privately suggested to you that we hadn't any frames and that if you wouldn't mind hinting to mr houghton etc 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 the madame was simply speechless for the space of a minute then she said how could you youth the idea of sending mr howells with his sensitive nature etc she was on pins and needles we see and it must have been intolerable to her that at the atlantic dinners her husband in spite of his immense fame sat below the salt her whole innocent mood was that of a woman to whom the values of that good society which as goethe said offers no material for poetry are the supreme unquestionable values and who felt that she and her brood must at all hazards learn the ropes mark twain after the enormous break of his whittier birthday speech wrote to mr howells my sense of disgrace does not abate it grows i see that it is going to add itself to my list of permanencies a list of humiliations that extends back to when i was seven years old and which keeps on persecuting me regardless of my repentances imagine a european man of genius having to qualify not as an individual 
but as a member of a social order into which he had not been born. Charles Dickens never felt grateful to society because it tolerated the man who had once been a waif of the streets. Mark Twain, as Mr. Paine presents him, was always the barefoot boy among the gods. Only in the light of this general subjugation of Mark Twain's character can we understand his literary subjugation. From the moment of his marriage his artistic integrity, already compromised, had, as a matter of fact, been irreparably destroyed. Quite literally, as a man of letters, his honor rooted in dishonor stood, and faith unfaithful kept him falsely true. He had accepted his father-in-law's financial assistance. He had bought his post on the Buffalo Express. In return, he had solemnly pledged the freedom of his mind. In these words of his salutatory, he made his pledge public. Being a stranger, it would be immodest for me to suddenly and violently assume the associate editorship of the Buffalo Express without a single word of comfort or encouragement to the unoffending patrons of this paper who are about to be exposed to constant attacks of my wisdom and learning. But the word shall be as brief as possible. I only want to assure parties having a friendly interest in the prosperity of the journal that I am not going to hurt the paper deliberately and intentionally at any time. I am not going to introduce any startling reforms, nor in any way attempt to make trouble. Such is my platform. I do not see any use in it, but custom is law and must be obeyed. Never, surely, was a creative will more innocently, more painlessly surrendered than in those words. Marriage had been, for Mark Twain's artistic conscience, like the final whiff of chloroform sealing a slumber that many a previous whiff had already induced. With that promise to be good, to refrain from hurting parties having a friendly interest in the prosperity of his journal, the artist in Mark Twain had fallen into a final trance. Anybody could manipulate him now. We have seen that his wife, who had become his chief censor, having no more independence of judgment than he, simply exposed him to the control of public opinion. This, in all matters of culture, meant New England, and especially Boston, and accordingly to please Boston, impossible, terrifying task had become as obligatory upon Mark Twain as to please Elmira. We have already observed the intellectual posture of Boston during the Gilded Age. Frigid and emasculate, it cast upon the presuming outsider the cold and hostile eye of an elderly maiden aunt who is not prepared to stand any nonsense. "'Tomorrow night,' writes Mark Twain in one of his earlier letters, "'I appear for the first time before a Boston audience, four thousand critics. He was lecturing with Petroleum V. Nasby, and he tells how frightened Petroleum was before the ordeal. 
fortunately in a sense for mark twain he had in mr howells a charitable sponsor a charitable intermediary but unfortunately for his genius mr howells was no more independent than himself mr howells was almost as much the nervous and timid alien in boston society as mrs clemens and as the latter's natural ally and supreme authority in the task of shaping her husband instead of dispelling mark twain's fears he simply redoubled them together like two tremulous maids dressing the plebeian daughter of some newly rich manufacturer in order to make her presentable for a court ball they worked over him expurgated him trimmed him to his own everlasting gratitude to mr howells he wrote i owe as much to your training as the rude country job printer owes to the city boss who takes him in hand and teaches him the right way to handle his art and of his wife he said i was a mighty rough coarse unpromising subject when livy took charge of me and i may still be to the rest of the world but not to her she has made a very creditable job of me and no doubt that refining process was necessary if mark twain had been enabled to stand on his own feet had been helped to discover himself as an artist it would have resulted naturally from the growth of his own self-consciousness his own critical sense as it was undertaken in behalf of a wholly false external ideal and by people who had no comprehension of his true principle of growth people who were themselves subservient to public opinion it destroyed the last vestiges of his moral independence there is a sorry tale about mark twain's neckties that is really symbolic of the process he was going through it seems that long after his marriage he still continued to wear an old-fashioned western string tie which was a cause of great embarrassment to his family and his friends an ever-present reminder that his regeneration was still incomplete no one quite knew what to do about it till at last howells and aldrich boldly bought him two cravats and humored him to his wife's infinite comfort into wearing them in this way the mysteries of a provincial gentility provincial because it was without a sense of proportion were kept constantly before his mind and he the lovable victim of his own love a gulliver among the lilliputians a sleeping samson surrendered his limbs to the myriad threads of convention yielded his locks to the shears of that simple delilah his wife for what sort of taste was it that mark twain had to satisfy hardly a taste for the frank the free the animated the expressive the criticism he received was purely negative we are told that mrs clemens and her friends read meredith with reverential appreciation that they formed a circle of devout listeners when mark twain himself used to read browning aloud in hartford profane art the mature expression of life in short was outside mrs clemens circle of ideas she could not breathe in that atmosphere with any comfort her instinctive notion of literature was of something that is read at the fireside out loud under the lamp 
a family institution vaguely associated with the bible and a father tempering the wind of king james english to the sensitive ears and blushing cheek of the youngest daughter her taste in a word was quite infantile mrs clemens says my version of the blindfold novelette a murder and a marriage is good pretty strong language for her writes mark twain in eighteen seventy six and we know that when he was at work on huckleberry finn and the prince and the pauper she so strongly preferred the latter that mark twain really felt it was rather discreditable of him to pay any attention to huckleberry finn at all imagine this fact he wrote to howells i have even fascinated mrs clemens with this yarn for youth my stuff generally gets considerable damning with faint praise out of her but this time it is all the other way she has become the horse-leech's daughter and my mill doesn't grind fast enough to suit her this is no mean triumph my dear sir and shortly afterward he wrote to his mother i have two stories and by the verbal agreement they are both going into the same book but livy says they are not and by george the first she ought to know she says they're going into separate books and that one of them is going to be elegantly gotten up even if the elegance of it eats up the publisher's profits and mine too it was the prince and the pauper a book that anybody might have written but whose romantic medievalism was equally respectable in its tendency and infantile in its appeal that mrs clemens felt so proud of nobody adds mr paine appears to have been especially concerned about huck except possibly the publisher plainly it was very little encouragement that mark twain's natural genius received from these relentless critics to whom he stood in such subjection to whom he offered such devotion for mr howells too if we are to accept mr paine's record seconded him as often as not in these innocuous infantile ventures abetting him in the production of blindfold novelettes and plays of an abysmal foolishness as for mark twain's unique masterpiece huckleberry finn i like it only tolerably well as far as i have got he writes and may possibly pigeonhole or burn the manuscript when it is done to which mr paine adds it did not fascinate him as did the story of the wandering prince he persevered only as the story moved him apparently he had not yet acquired confidence or pride enough in poor huck to exhibit him even to friends and quite naturally his artistic self-respect had been so little developed had been in fact so baffled and abashed by all this mauling and fumbling that he could take no pride in a book which was precisely the mirror of the unregenerate past he was doing his best to live down behold mrs clemens then in the role of critic and censor 
a memorandum mark twain made at the time when he and she were going over the proofs of following the equator shows us how she conceived of her task it is in the form of a dialogue between them page one thousand twenty ninth line from the top i think some other word would be better than stench you have used that pretty often but can't i get it in anywhere you've knocked it out every time out it goes again and yet stench is a noble good word page one thousand thirty-eight i hate to have your father pictured as lashing a slave boy it's out and my father is whitewashed page one thousand fifty second line from the bottom change breech clout it's a word that you love and i abominate i would take that and offal out of the language you are steadily weakening the english tongue livy we can see from this that to mrs clemens virility was just as offensive as profanity that she had no sense of the difference between virility and profanity and vulgarity that she had in short no positive taste no independence of judgment at all we can see also that she had no artistic ideal for her husband that she regarded his natural liking for bold and masculine language which was one of the outward signs of his latent greatness merely as a literary equivalent of bad manners as something that endangered their common prestige in the eyes of conventional public opinion she condemned his writings says mr paine specifically for the offence they might give in one way or another and that her sole object however unconscious in doing this was to further him not as an artist but as a popular success and especially as a candidate for gentility is proved by the fact that she made him as we observe in the incident of his father and the slave boy whitewash not only himself but his family history also and in all this mr howells seconded her it skirts a certain kind of fun which you can't afford to indulge in he reminds our shorn sampson in one of his letters and again i'd have that swearing out in an instant the swearing in this case being what he himself admits is so exactly the thing huck would say namely they comb me all to hell as for mark twain himself he took it as meekly as a lamb mr paine tells of a certain story he had written that was disrespectful to the archbishop of canterbury forbidden to print it he had laboriously translated it into german with some idea of publishing it surreptitiously but his conscience had been too much for him he had confessed and even the german version had been suppressed and how does he accept mr howells's injunction about the swearing in huckleberry finn mrs clemens received the mail this morning he writes and the next minute she lit into the study with danger in her eye and this demand on her tongue where is the profanity mr howells speaks of then i had to miserably confess that i had left it out when reading the manuscript to her 
nothing but almost inspired lying got me out of this scrape with my scalp does your wife give you rats like that when you go a little one-sided they are very humiliating these glimpses of great american writers behind the scenes given rats by their wives whenever they stray for an instant from the straight and narrow path that leads to success once writes mr paine when sarah orne jewett was with the party in rome he remarked that if the old masters had labeled their fruit one wouldn't be so likely to mistake pears for turnips youth said mrs claims gravely if you do not care for these masterpieces yourself you might at least consider the feelings of others and miss jewett regarding him severely added in her quaint yankee fashion now you've been spoke to very humiliating very ignominious i say are these tableau of the lincoln of our literature in the posture of an ignorant little boy browbeatened by the dry sisters of culture philistia very humiliating and also very tragic mark twain had come east with the only conscious ambition that western life had bred in him the ambition to succeed in a practical sense to win wealth and fame but the poet in him was still astir still seeking 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 for corroboration for the frank hand and the gallant word that might set it free we know this from the dim hope of liberation he had associated with the idea of marriage and we can guess that his eager desire to meet men of superior intellect and character was more than half a desire to find someone who could give him that grand conception of the literary life which he had never been able to formulate someone who could show him how to meet life in the proud free way of the artist how to unify himself and focus his powers well he had met the best the greatest he had met the man whom the brahmins themselves had crowned as their successor he had met mr howells and in this man of marvelous talent this darling of all the gods and all the graces he had encountered once more the eternal universal instinctive american subservience to what mr santayana calls the genteel tradition he had reached in short the heaven of literature and found it empty and there was nothing beyond for the poet in him to seek consider if i seem to be exaggerating the story of captain stormfield's visit to heaven which lay in mark twain's safe for forty years before he dared to publish it that little tale was slight enough in itself but he was always tinkering with it as the years went on it assumed in his eyes an abnormal importance as the symbol of what he wished to do and was prohibited from doing the other evening his little daughter susie records in eighteen eighty six as papa and i were promenading up and down the library he told me that he didn't expect to write but one more book and then he was ready to give up work altogether die or do anything he said that he had written more than he had ever expected to and the only book that he had been particularly anxious to write was one locked up in the safe downstairs not yet published he had begun it in eighteen sixty eight even before he had issued the innocents abroad 
the vast popular success of which had overlaid this tentative personal venture that he had been prevented because of its blasphemous tendency from pursuing there was his true line the line of satire we know it as much from the persistence with which he clung to that book as from his own statement that it was the only one he had been particularly anxious to write there was his true line and he had halted in it for want of corroboration and what was mr howells's counsel when howells was here last writes mark twain to his brother orion in 1878 i laid before him the whole story without referring to the manuscript and he said you have got it sure this time but drop the idea of making mere magazine stuff of it don't waste it print it by itself publish it first in england ask dean stanley to endorse it which will draw some of the teeth of the religious press and then reprint in america there was the highest ideal the boldest conception of personal freedom of the independence of the spirit of the function of literature that mark twain had found in america neither howells nor i he adds believe in hell or the divinity of the savior but no matter no matter no the integrity of the spirit had become as indifferent to him as it was to the gilded age itself he this divided soul had sought the great leader and had found only an irresponsible child like himself a child who told him that you had to sneak off behind the barn if you wanted to smoke the pipe of truth is it remarkable then that having found in the literary life as it shaped itself in the industrial america every incentive to cower and cringe and hedge and no incentive whatever to stand upright as a man is it remarkable i say that mark twain should have relapsed into the easy happy posture that came so natural to him in the presence of his wife the posture of the little boy who is licensed to play the literary game as much as he likes so long as he isn't too rude or too vulgar and turns an honest penny by it and never forgets that the real business of life is to make hay and fame and fortune and pass muster in course of time as a gentleman smoke he writes i always smoke from three till five on sunday afternoons and in new york the other day i smoked a week day and night and once or twice i smooched a sunday when the boss wasn't looking nothing is half so good as literature hooked on sunday on the sly incorrigible naughty boy he never dreams of asserting a will of his own but doesn't he delight in his freedom from responsibility isn't it a relief to be absolved from the effort of creating standards of his own and living up to them a man is never anything but what his outside influences have made him wrote mark twain years later it is his human environment 
which influences his mind and his feelings, furnishes him his ideals, and sets him on his road, and keeps him in it. If he leave that road he will find himself shunned by the people whom he most loves and esteems, and whose approval he most values. He who so willingly suppressed, at his wife's command, the first germ of the book he was to call his Bible, his deatistical note on God, who had formed the habit of withholding views which he thought would strike his neighbors as shocking, heretical, and blasphemous, who in spite of his true opinion spoke of himself in public to the end of his life as a Presbyterian, who had, in fact, like the chameleon which he said man was, taken the religious color of his environment just as he had taken its social and financial color, had he not virtually ceased to feel any obligation to his own soul? If, he wrote, in What is Man, if that timid man had lived all his life in a community of human rabbits, had never read of brave deeds, had never heard speak of them, had never heard any one praise them, nor express envy of the heroes that had done them, he would have had no more idea of bravery than Adam had of modesty, and it could never by any possibility have occurred to him to resolve to become brave. He could not originate the idea it had to come to him from the outside. The tell-tale emphasis of those italics is not that drab philosophy of Mark Twain's, that cumbrous chain of argument, just one long pathetic plea in self-extenuation? End of chapter 5 The Candidate for Gentility Read by John Greenman